on your seats there, there is an alpha form with a QR code that will take you to the website if you wanted to register for that. But also, if you wanted to invite a friend, that's the link that you can pass on to them. Uh, Alpha starts in uh, just over or just under three weeks' time. It'd be great to see as many people there as we can hearing about the gospel for the first time. But for us right now, we're going to open up the Bible to Galatians chapter 1. So if you have a Bible with you, I'd love for you to open that up as well. And in future weeks, if you haven't brought your Bible to church for a long time, maybe this is the time to begin. Let's, um, let's start it over this term as we open up Galatians. We're going to start right at the beginning at Galatians 1, sentence 1. And we believe at City Light that the Bible is God's Word, as it's read and taught faithfully and accurately. It's God speaking to us. And so we're going to start now from Galatians 1.1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you who want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This is the word of God. Hey everyone, uh, it's great to be with you guys again today. My name is Jacob, if we haven't met, and a massive welcome if you're here for the first time or uh, maybe join us over the Easter weekend and you're coming back again this week. And we just really hope you feel welcome and that uh, I guess wherever you're at in your journey that just today is helpful for you in that. I just want also to say a massive thank you to everyone who's just been serving this morning on music and sound and, and welcoming. I don't know, did you, did you mention before the power situation? You wouldn't know it, but there is no power in this hall. We found out on Friday afternoon that you can see all the red tape up there. They've been doing some repairs, and they just didn't get the power back on. So everything from the instruments to the screen, projector, computer, coffee machine, everything's run on extension cables from a classroom. So um, you wouldn't even know. Um, so t- obviously a big effort from everyone who was serving and setting up this morning um, as well. Like Jez said, um, we're starting a new book today, which is the book of Galatians. And so what we do here at City Light for uh, most of the time, at least on a Sunday, is we take one of the 66 books that makes up the Bible and we just go a little bit through it week by week. Um, And today we're starting the book of Galatians, which isn't a big book. It's not a long book, certainly. You could read it very comfortably in about 15 minutes. Some of you might even choose to do this afternoon. So it's not a long book, but it's a book that packs a punch. And as Jez alluded to before, its contents have been world-shaping. 500 years ago or so, in the early 1500s, so that's like 50 years or so before Shakespeare to give you a bit of a bearing, the Christian population of the world was concentrated mostly in Europe, and it wasn't divided up into denominations like Anglican, Presbyterian, Baptist, kind of how we know it today. It was relatively uniform, and, and the main reason for this was that there was kind of one hierarchical structure kind of organizing all of the kind of Christian world across Europe, Um, into a system of, you know, bishops, archbishops, and a pope. 
And the church at, at this point in time, um, specifically in the early 1500s, was at a real low point. It had become fundamentally a corrupt system, one that sought to really exercise power over ordinary people. Um, the Pope's spiritual authority was supreme. He was really the highest authority in Europe, even above the kind of various kings ruling different countries. And the Bible was made only accessible in Latin, which was a language that most people, most people couldn't read regardless, but most people couldn't even understand. The common languages of French, of English, of German that was spoken, um, the Bible wasn't accessible in those languages. And one of the, I guess, the, the main areas that this corruption that the church had kind of fallen into manifested itself was in the, the system of indulgences, which was basically a system that you as an ordinary person could pay off and make back, you know, for the sin that you've done. So you could commit adultery, um, and because that's a problem, you could go and fight in a crusade to have that wiped clean. So I don't know where the logic is in that, but that was kind of how it worked. Or if it was just a little lie that you told, maybe saying a prayer would suffice. But someone in that kind of system of trying to thinking of things that will make up for sin had a brilliant idea. And if you pitch this to Shark Tank, it'd go off because it's, it's, um, it's commercial genius. They decided, we'll, just, we'll sell indulgences. That is, you can just get people to pay to have their sin wiped clean. And so there were these professional pardoners, they were called, who would just roam around village to village, set up shop, and sell little bits of paper that wiped your sin clean. And if you had enough money in your pocket, you could even pay to kind of get your sin removed in advance. So you could kind of put like a $200 down payment, and that would cover you for the next year. Anything that you did, God was going to kind of turn a blind eye because you had paid the price. Um, And so as you can imagine, there's a lot of money to be made in this. Um, and someone even kind of thought of another idea, which is you can sell indulgences for the dead. So if you've got a great aunt who maybe passed away a couple of years ago, and you're not sure she's in the right place, you can just pay 20 bucks, get a quick release from purgatory and into heaven. Now, it's kind of laughable, right, because it's just such a foreign concept to us today. But this was, this was rampant. This was across Europe. This was the, 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 the standard practice of the church at the time. Um, it's amazing to think it could devolve into something just so obviously corrupt. Then in 1515 or so, a young monk by the name of Martin Luther, who was someone who was trained to read in Latin, but also in Greek and in Hebrew, was working his way through the Bible. And he came to the writings of the Apostle Paul, and in particular, to this particular set of writings in Galatians that we're looking at today. And in the study of this book, it changed everything for him. He came across lines like Galatians 5.1, which we'll come to in time, which says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. He discovered the gospel of grace, the good news that had somehow gone missing from the entire church. He realized that the church had let slip this promise of grace that God just offers you a free gift and people had, I guess, set, set up a new system of slavery having to have people pay their own way. So he wrote, he wrote up a thing called, his thing called the 95 Theses, which was against indulgences, narrowed to the door of a church, which was then distributed to center around Europe, and so began the Reformation, which over the next few decades liberated ordinary people across Europe from this controlling pressure from the church and freed people to commune with God themselves, to understand what Jesus had achieved for them, to read the Bible in their own language, as we've kind of heard, And it's all from this idea that is contained within the book of Galatians. It's a powerful book. 
because it contains a powerful idea, an idea that brings freedom. And so what we're going to be doing over the, this whole term here at City Light is unpacking this book of Galatians. And what I'm hoping to do today is really just give you an intro to that, to give you enough of a framework from the beginning of the book that everything that follows in, in the coming weeks will make sense. That you can kind of understand the big idea that Paul is trying to lay out in this book. And his, the overall idea, there's some confusing and complicated parts in Galatians, but the big idea is pretty simple. And the idea is this. Don't desert the gospel. Don't trade it in. Don't give it up. Don't desert the gospel. So I'm just going to pray now. And we're going to jump into this first section and just see how kind of Paul sets up this situation for us. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just ask as we come to your word, this word that has... Um, has done so much in our world, has, has given people a sense of hope, a sense of freedom, a sense of joy, a sense of lightness, um, a, a message and a word that has toppled corrupt power and given freedom to ordinary people like us. We just ask that as we dig into it today and over this term that you'd be with us, that you'd help us see you more truly, understand you more deeply, and that we'd be even affected by it um, spiritually and emotionally as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, to make sense of the book of Galatians, we do need a bit of context, and so there's a bit more kind of history in this one than there normally is. Um, the book of Galatians wasn't written as a book that you would find printed and sold in a bookshop. It wasn't originally written for kind of mass consumption. It was a letter. It was written between two parties that, that know each other. Now, I'm not much of a letter writer, um, but my grandma does write me like one or two letters a year. And every time that comes, I read through it. And I do make the effort to find a bit of paper, which we don't even have in the house, and, and uh, a stamp, which I never know. It seems that it goes up like 20 cents a year. It's like $5 to send a letter these days. And I write something back, and I hope it gets there because I don't really trust the postal service that much. <laughs> and the thing is, if, if someone intercepted that letter along the way, There'd be a whole lot of it that would make sense to my grandma about kind of my life and the context that wouldn't make sense to someone else reading it. You wouldn't even necessarily know the relationship. Like you'd wonder, like, are they friends? Are they lovers? Hopefully not, because I do write to grandma at the top. <laughs> but there'd be some context that would be needed to make sense of it. Because you just kind of take things for granted when you write a letter that the person you're writing to has an, enough of an understanding of what is going on to make sense of your references. And so we need to make sense of what, what is going on in the context of this letter. And so Paul lays out, I guess, the to's and the from's in the introduction. He begins in verse 1. And in the ancient world, you, you, you don't start with who it's writing to, you start with who, it, who it's coming from. And he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. So Paul was someone described as an apostle. An apostle just means a sent one. And he's really clear here today, he's not being sent as a messenger from some person or just any person, but he's sent through Jesus. And next week we're going to come more to Paul's story. But Paul wasn't an apostle who spent you know, most of Jesus' life walking around with him. Paul was a person who, um, after Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, was tasked with going around and arresting and killing Christians. Um, in the process of doing that, Jesus appeared to him supernaturally and sent him to share the good news of the gospel across the Roman Empire. So he would travel around, find a place to preach, meet some locals, see them converted, and then leave them in charge to run a church while he went on to the next town. And one of the re regions that he did this in was Galatia, 
which I'll be honest, I didn't know where it was this week. I would have guessed Greece, but it's not in Greece. It's in what is now Turkey. So where Ukraine is, directly south across the Black Sea, you've got Turkey. And in the middle of that was, it wasn't Turkey back then, it was Galatia. And so he went to Galatia. He, he met some people. He told them about Jesus and he went back, I guess, to Jerusalem or to wherever he was going next. Now, Galatia was predominantly a Gentile region. Um, Gentile just means anyone who's not a Jew. And, um, and that makes sense because it's a fair way from Jerusalem, which is where Paul was from. Now, this is important to understand just f- to make sense of this letter. This is like we're just going to slog through one little bit more and it'll start to make sense. Most of the first Christians were Jewish. They had a bunch of um, cultural practices that they'd inherited, things like male circumcision, like eating kosher foods and, and not eating things that weren't kosher, like keeping the Sabbath. And Jesus himself was a Jew and kept these practices. But Paul was the first one to really take this message of the gospel to people who were non-Jewish. And so when people who weren't Jewish were added to the Christian community, a question um, arose, which was, should these non-Jews, when they become Christians and followers of Jesus, also, in a sense, become Jewish? Should they take on these practices and laws that Jewish Christians were still practicing and taking for granted? And the consensus amongst the church leadership, the apostles at the time, was no, they shouldn't have to do that. It's a gospel of grace. They don't have to do anything. They just need to accept this message. But a few kind of people on the fringe said, actually, no, we think they should. We think they should take on all of these Jewish laws. Even though they don't have a Jewish background themselves, they should start you know, getting circumcised and, and, and eating the right foods as the Jews do. And that caused some confusion. And some people had actually gone up to Galatia from Jerusalem to tell these Gentile new Christians, hey guys, look, you've heard about this gospel. You've heard that Jesus died to forgive you and show you grace. What you've missed out on was this, you actually got a bunch of rules you've got to do as well. You need to start following these Jewish rules and laws and customs. And when Paul hears this, he's frustrated. He's frustrated that someone's gone in behind him and, and told these people this damaging doctrine that, it, that has taken them away from the true gospel. And so he writes this letter. And this letter is to bring them back to the gospel. And that's how Paul starts. He starts with raising the question, then what is the good news? The gospel just means good news. What is it? I think kind of oftentimes when, um, I guess maybe even in our culture, people think of what is at the heart of the Christian message. What is Jesus wanting to communicate to us uh, or have us do? It's, it's maybe akin a bit to a, a self-help book. It's a series of steps to make yourself better, be who you're meant to be, and improve yourself. And I'll be honest, I'm a little bit of a sucker for, for the self-help genre. Um, kind of across kind of a whole range of topics. So I'll read The Barefoot Investor and believe that I'm going to be rich if I get an ING debit card and <laughs> split, my, split my income into categories. I read I Quit Sugar and think that if I can just, you know, eat lettuce and kale and keep my sugar intake between like four, under four grams per hundred grams, then everything is going to be okay. I read Atomic Habits by James Clear and think if I just put on running shoes in the morning, before long I'll be running marathons. And then when I, what happens to me when I read these books, I feel empowered. I'm like, this is great. I now know the secret. I'm going to kind of go out. I'm going to conquer life. But despite having read these books and many more, I still find myself checking my bank balance and seeing streaming subscriptions that I'd forgotten about coming out. I still eat plenty of ice cream. Um, and the only habit I really seem to be able to keep is my coffee addiction. Now, if the gospel of Jesus is just something like this, a set of kind of steps, here's what you can do, and life's going to get better, you're going to kind of be right, you're going to do right. 
it's not good news. Because we might be able to keep some of these things for some time, but there is something deeply, uh, you know, I guess true about us that I think everyone can understand, is that we're not that good at following through. We're not that good at obeying. We're not that good at, 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 at changing and improving ourselves. And so that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is not, here's what you do to make yourself better. Paul's going to, over the book, explain the gospel in a few different ways, but here's a really concise little summary he starts with from verse 3. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of, God, of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. It's a bit of a nutshell description, but there's a few things in, that, in this description that's kind of worth pulling out for us. Just things that we might even take for granted, but we just need to remember. And the first one is just simply this. The gospel isn't something we do. It's something that's done for us. Verse 4 says, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. What we looked at over Easter weekend, the, the, the gospel is a gift. It's Jesus choosing to give himself for us. To die in the place of our sins. So that's, it's not something we do, it's something that he does. And secondly, what does it achieve? Well, it says he gave, us, um, he gave himself to deliver us from the present evil age. If you've got a, a, some other translations like the NIV, that word deliver will be translated rescue, which I think is helpful to see this as a, as a deliverance or as a rescue because the gospel is fundamentally a rescue story. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation when you've had to be rescued, but by definition, you get rescued when you can't solve things yourself. A few years back, and I, I struggle to even really believe this happened, but I confirmed it with Dibin this morning, who was there at the time, um, that it's not a made-up story. We were one, one day, we were out on Sydney Harbour on a, on a small boat with a motor when the motor died. And we tried and tried and tried to get it started, and it just wouldn't. And so we were adrift, and we looked in the boat. There weren't any oars in there. And so we were just floating in Sydney Harbour. Now, we weren't in the ocean, so it wasn't a complete disaster, but it was um, somewhat stressful nonetheless. And after about 15 minutes of drifting, um, which we realized was getting closer and closer to a Navy vessel that was moored, we heard over a loudspeaker, um, you're in restricted waters, turn back. And... We couldn't turn back, so we just kept, kept on drifting. Um, and the message came again, and we thought, well, we can't do anything here. We kept on drifting. And eventually, a, a little Navy patrol boat came out to meet us. And it was a, a humiliating and embarrassing experience um, to be there. Like, we couldn't do anything. And they were actually really lovely. They ended up giving us a rope, and they towed us to a boat ramp so we could kind of get, get sorted out, which was a relief. There's something in that, when you need rescuing, whether you've gotten lost in the bush, or whether you've you know, made a mistake at the beach and gotten caught in a rip, or somehow you've got yourself stuck up a tree, there's a certain humility in those moments where you have to just face facts that you've got yourself into a situation that you can't get out of. That the only solution is to get help from the outside. You've got to swallow your pride in that moment and accept help. You don't get rescued when you've got things under control. You get rescued when you can't do it yourself. But then when you are rescued, when you're brought ashore or taken back home or removed from harm's way, there's also a relief, isn't there? There's that initial kind of you know, humility and almost embarrassment, but then there's a joy 
that someone has done for you what you couldn't do for yourself and that you were made safe. This is the gospel. It's a rescue. We were trapped, dying, in need of, res- need of rescue, and Jesus came down into our world and died on the cross for us so that we can be saved and restored and set free. And if you notice in that description that Paul lays out, there is nothing in there that we do. On our own, we stumble and sin. On our own, we find ourselves at the end of our lives walking through a door called death with no real means of doing anything good for ourselves on the other side and no way to prepare. But Jesus came into our world to rescue us. That's the gospel and it's good news. It's not about doing stuff. It's about receiving something that's... It's a declaration of what has happened. But the Galatians have been told something else. They've lost sight of it. So in verse 6, on the back of just describing that little nutshell gospel, Paul says this. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul can't really just hide his shock at what's going on. That They've been given this great message and they're trying to trade it for something else. And Paul's quick to point out that there aren't equally valid Gospels. It's not like, well, yeah, they're all kind of all the same, whichever one you kind of choose. No, there's only one true good news. But he's saying there are people out there who are distorting it, who are changing it. They're saying you need to do this to enter the kingdom. You need to do this for God to accept you. You need to do this for God to love you. Now, the temptation that they had as, um, in Galatia to kind of add on these kind of Jewish ceremonial customs are probably not the temptation that we're prone to. Neither probably would be the buying of indulgences. But there are always different Gospels out there, or different so-called Gospels, messages that say, yeah, you need Jesus, but you need Jesus plus. You need Jesus and fill in the blank in order to be saved. And they're often subtle. They might not even be things that are spoken out loud, but we believe deep down. For God to accept you, you don't just need Jesus to die for you, but you also need to be sexually pure. For God to accept you, you need Jesus, but you also need to to dress and talk a certain way. For God to accept you, you need Jesus, but you also need to be culturally, culturally relevant and progressive. Or maybe the distortion is even more subtle than that. It's just a felt a felt pride that is affronted by the gospel. Maybe you like the idea of grace to some extent and God helping you out, but you're more comfortable with what David Brooks calls participatory grace, which is, yeah, for sure God is gracious, but I'm kind of meeting him halfway. Because I'm a good person after all. Like I, I totally get if a murderer needs this big forgiveness thing to happen, but I'm actually pretty good deep down. I work hard, I put in, and so God for sure is doing a bit, but I'm meeting him halfway. Because to be told that we need to be rescued challenges our pride. No one likes to be told that they're sinful. It's not a nice thing to be told because it challenges. We, we've built up this kind of narrative for ourselves that we are okay, we're in control, but the gospel says otherwise. And Paul says adding on this extra thing you need to do to the gospel isn't just a tweak. It's not just a minor change, but it fundamentally undermines the whole thing. It's a distortion. Because the gospel is a message of grace. What we are given is a gift and it's unearned. But to say you have to do one little thing undoes it all. Because there are some things that when you add something to them, it it removes them altogether. If you've got a vacuum, not like a Dyson, but like a space devoid of air, and you add some air to it, you don't have 
a vacuum with some air in it, you just don't have a vacuum because by definition that's what it is. If you've got complete darkness and you add some light, you don't get to say, yeah, that's complete darkness with some light. You've, you don't have the darkness. If you have grace, which is an unearned gift, and you do something to earn it, you don't have grace. Adding a requirement to perform any task or of any law to receive God's kindness and salvation undermines it all. It spoils it. It takes a gift and makes it something earned. It takes something beautiful and makes it ugly. And it takes something valuable and makes it cheap. And so Paul reinforces in verses 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. It's heavy language, isn't it? He's not taking this lightly. He's saying this is horrible what is happening. Adding to or changing the gospel. Because he's saying that this gospel message is the supreme authority. It's got an authority even greater than angels. It's got an authority greater than his. This message is everything. And he knows that it's a serious problem to get rid of it because it, depriving people of the true gospel of grace is a matter of life and death. Because only this gospel saves only the knowledge that Jesus died in our place for us is the real rescue. And if you're told that you can earn your way to salvation, you miss the gift. And the tragic thing is, so many people miss the gift. We need to re-encounter the gospel of grace. 200 years after the Reformation and Martin Luther um, and the indulgences we talked about before, in the 1730s, the church had again gone cold. And this time it wasn't the Catholic Church, it was the Protestant Church. In particular, it was the Church of England, the Anglican Church. It had gone stale. People would rock up to church on a Sunday morning in their town. They'd sit through a boring sermon and go home unchanged. But a small group of believers were searching for God. And among them were, were John and, and Charles Wesley, who practically reinvented the idea that Christians could just meet in homes and talk to each other and help each other grow and read the Bible and not just go to a church on a Sunday. And so they were doing this, meeting in a home, chatting about God, trying to understand him better. And one night, a man named William Holland um, had come across Martin Luther's commentary on the Galatians. Um, and so he brought it along, and at the beginning of Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians, there's a preface which just outlines the whole argument of the book of Galatians. And he suggested that they take turns reading it aloud. And he tells the story of what happened when Charles Wesley took the text and read. He says, There came such a power over me as I cannot well describe. My great burden fell off in an instant. My heart was so filled with peace and love that I burst into tears. I almost thought I saw our Savior. My companions, perceiving me so affected, fell on their knees and prayed. When I afterward went into the street, I could scarcely feel the ground I trod upon. What a, what a crazy response to hearing of this message. On the, on the back of this, William Holland took it upon himself just to go around to a different house every night and read them Martin Luther's commentary on the Galatians. And this little group of people and, and, and what happened in these meetings ended up being known as the Great Awakening. Where across particularly England and America, this, this fresh encounter of God was just felt. Um, by a people who had grown cold and tired to the gospel. And it's this message that did it. What was it that 
that, that William read that transformed him so much? I just want to read you from Luther's preface to his commentary on the Galatians, how he summarizes this message. It'll come on the screen. He says, So then, have we nothing to do to obtain this righteousness? No, nothing at all. For this righteousness comes by doing nothing, hearing nothing, knowing nothing, but rather in knowing and believing this only, that Christ has gone to the right hand of the Father, not to become our judge, but to become for us our wisdom, our righteousness, our holiness, our salvation. So now we may certainly think, although I still sin, I don't despair, because Christ lives who is both my righteousness and my eternal life. This is the gospel. Now, why do I tell these stories of like church history and things that happened hundreds of years ago? Because I don't normally have a lot of church history in my sermons. Um, the reason is that the gospel of grace, which is contained for us, in which we're going to be walking our way through in the book of Galatians, has the power to wake the church from its slumber. It has the power to move, the power to transform, to lighten loads, to change hearts and to revive souls. And so we need to be acquainted with this gospel. We need it to be the case that Paul wouldn't say of us that we've deserted him who called us in grace. That it would not be said of us that we've turned to another gospel. Um, and I think it's the case that for some of you, maybe you feel this of yourself acutely, that over the last couple of years of kind of COVID and lockdowns, maybe you've grown a bit cold. Maybe you, you've, you've kind of become a bit numb to this message. Maybe practically speaking you kind of live life like it's just kind of your own effort it's the things you've got to do and it's tough and i want to invite you to rehear the gospel this term or maybe this is new to you maybe you've, like this is your first day in church ever and you don't know anything about any of this stuff i want you to know that there is a message something you can understand that will change you that will give you a lightness and a joy that god loves you not because of anything you do but because of who he is and what he has done but above all, the thought that's been in my head these last few days as I've kind of just thought about this passage and prepared it is that this is what our city needs. We live in a city that is called to the gospel. Some people haven't heard it. Others don't care for it or don't think that they need it. We need a revival. We need, we need some change. We need people to have a fresh encounter of this message because it is a message that is good even though people think that the church is backwards and bad and whatever it is. This is a good message. This is life-giving. This is joy-giving. This gives relationship and love. And we need people to encounter this. And so my prayer is that over this term as we look into Galatians, that it would just be transforming us all, as we need individually, but also us as a church. I'm just going to pray that God would be doing that now um, over this term. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for your word in the book of Galatians. And we just look forward to getting into it this term. We ask that we would... Um, be willing to sit and hear about the gospel week after week that we wouldn't be looking for the life advice we wouldn't be looking for what it has to say about our thing we've got on at work this week or the particular challenge that is unique to us in that moment but we would just be willing just willing just to to sit um, and have wash over us this message of grace and that, that would make us a grace transformed people we pray this in jesus name Amen.